Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about fall nitrogen, especially anhydrous ammonia. And I realize that might not be the most popular topic in your area, anhydrous, but we're going to discuss that. Uh, safety, just how it can be used. A lot of people talk negatively about anhydrous that, oh, it's going to hurt the soil life. So we'll discuss that as well today. And if there's anything that that you would like to talk about today, anything going on in your farm, or if you've got any questions for us, you can certainly call us here at 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can email us radio at agphd.com or send us a note on Twitter, agphdmedia. Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. We are live in the Morton studio today, and I guess I'll just start out real quick with this fall nitrogen topic. And I'll I'll say this. There's no one answer for everyone in the world. We talk often here on the show about split applying nitrogen, for example. Well, that doesn't mean you need to split apply. We talk often about waiting until spring to apply any or all of your nitrogen. That may or may not apply to you. So I'm, I'm just trying to, to preface all our talk today with these words, that you need to do what's right for your ground, your environment, and whatever cropping plan you've got moving forward. So just for example, if I'm in a cold, dry area, I don't have uh, light soil, I have very heavy soil, well, what risk do I have if I'm applying late in the fall? Like this morning, we were, I'm going to say 14 or 16 degrees, something like that. It was really cold. Okay, the soil temp is cold. You're just fine in our geography to put anhydrous on. A lot of our soils are 20 to 30 cation exchange capacity, so very heavy. Normally, and I say normally because the last two years you've had a way... Uh, above normal precip, but normally we only get 20 to 22 inches of total annual precip, including the snow. We're very cold. I mean, the ground is going to be frozen probably next week all the way until uh, maybe the middle of April, something like that, hopefully earlier than that, but worst case scenario, middle of April. So it's not going anywhere. I can put put anhydrous out right now, and it's going to be almost perfect come spring. So in my case, but if you have the opposite, let's say you're in Alabama with very light soil, you get four times the rainfall we do, or at least three times the rainfall we do, um, you're in a whole different situation. And by the way, you're not cold yet, and your soil may never be fully frozen like ours is frozen. So every situation is a little different. Um, In terms of anhydrous actually hurting the soil, there was a lot of talk about that, especially 20 years ago. And people were saying, well, the anhydrous will kill a lot of the soil life. Yep, it will. Anhydrous is going to kill everything it comes in direct contact with immediately that day, which is why you don't want to come in direct contact with it ever. You got to be very, very careful whenever you're applying anhydrous and anywhere around anhydrous. But once it's in the ground, then, then we're usually in pretty good shape. And I go back to Francis Childs. He was the first guy who was consistently raising over 400 bushel corn, and this is 20 years ago. He used a lot of anhydrous ammonia. Well, if a guy raising 400 bushel corn can use anhydrous, and this is 20 years ago, um, I feel pretty good that anhydrous would work for me. 
Our biggest limiting factor here has been either price or availability. The price of anhydrous skyrocketed a few years ago based on all the safety requirements and insurance and everything else, so people had to raise their price. And now a lot of the retailers around here are not even carrying anhydrous, so I would like to get anhydrous and apply it this fall, but I can't. It's not close enough to me, and or I'm looking at the price and I go, well... If 28% is the same price as anhydrous, and I'm going to have one of our people on the farm apply 28%, I'm gonna, or I would have one of our people on the farm apply anhydrous, I know which direction I'm going. I'm going with the safe product, and I'll just put it on in the spring, or maybe urea, or whatever it is. So anyway, the, the point is, we do like anhydrous. We do think that it fits in certain situations. And certainly applying in the fall, that's a really good time to do it. What we've always talked about with anhydrous is you've got to get it down in the soil. You've got to get it covered. If it's not covered and covered well, you're going to be losing it. It's going to go right up in the air. So you got to get it deep. Well, the problem with that is if you're out there in the spring and you say, okay, my ground is now finally fit to get that anhydrous down deep, by then, usually, you, you could have been planting a week or two before that. So you, you, I, I would just say this. We believe in anhydrous applied in the fall. We're not real big believers in anhydrous in the spring. We are also believers in anhydrous in the fall and not believers in urea and liquid 28% in the fall in most cases, especially at higher rates because of the form that it ends up going into. With anhydrous, usually within 48 hours, it's going to convert over to ammonium. Well, that's great, because ammonium is is the nice, stable form of nitrogen. Ammonium is going to attach itself to soil particles. It's not going to leach. It's the form that the plant can use. Uh, uh, let Let me rephrase that. Plants can bring in both nitrate and ammonium, but they prefer ammonium. If they bring in nitrate, They actually have to convert it over to ammonium before they use it, which requires a little energy. So we like to have nitrogen in the ammonium form. So there are many, many, many good things about anhydrous. But the last point I guess that I will make, even though it does turn to the ammonium form and we we like that, it's more stable than nitrate, we still do encourage you, if you're applying any nitrogen in the fall, to use a stabilizer with it, just to hopefully keep it in that ammonium form that much longer. You know, Brian, one thing that we haven't heard this fall has been, boy, you know, it's the soils are so warm, we probably shouldn't be putting out nitrogen. You know, that's one thing we didn't have for a problem in 2019. So, you know, everybody said all these problems we've had in 2019. I was like, well, here's one problem we don't have. It's not too warm for fertilizer this year. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's tough to find positives in 2019. But we're going to talk about uh, nitrogen and fall application Coming up on today's program, also taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Using NSERV nitrogen stabilizer with fall fertilizer applications keeps nitrogen available into the spring for maximum crop growth. Field trials in Iowa show NSERV delivered an average revenue increase of $22.96 per acre, and NSERV is the only recognized nitrogen stabilizer product in the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy because it reduces nitrate leaching. That's max profit in an environmentally sustainable way. Calculate your field's profit potential at nitrogenmaximizers.com. 
We plant corn in Iowa, spray soybeans in Illinois. We pull calves in Kansas, farrow hogs in Minnesota. We raise rice in Arkansas, rye in Canada, and wheat everywhere in between. We farm millions of acres across North America and build every piece of Case IH equipment. Built by farmers, for farmers. Case IH, rethink productivity. Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG soil fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Our topic is anhydrous, and this is something that it's been interesting. Brian brought up a, a number of our local issues that we've had around here, even sourcing the product. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of information about anhydrous out there. Uh, some some good, some maybe a little questionable, but uh, it's, it's a great topic to have as harvest wraps up in some areas and other farmers are getting um, nutrients out in the field and it may be something that you're considering on your farm. Got Glenn Arnold with us right now with Ohio State. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. All right, so uh, so we're going to talk about anhydrous today a little bit. Uh, you get questions about this, I'm sure. What what's going on in the state of Ohio right now around anhydrous? Well, we were um, busy with soybean harvest. Remember, we were extraordinarily late getting planted this this past year, so soybeans uh, were coming off pretty strong, and then we've gotten about three inches of rain in the last six days. So um, the rain just ended about an hour ago. So we're pretty much sitting still here in Ohio uh, with about, oh, I'd say um, three-quarters of the beans harvested and maybe a quarter of the corn removed so far. So we've got quite a ways to go. Wow. Yep, that's for sure. And, it, you know, this has been a challenging year. I know uh, we're refarming South Dakota. We've been hearing about Ohio and South Dakota all through the year about, oh, so wet, so wet, such a challenge. I know it did vary across your state. Do you, is that uh, rain that you've been getting this week, has that been statewide? Pretty much this, this rain has been. Uh, the eastern part of the state got planted in pretty good shape. They're, they're the garden spot this year. They had pretty satisfactory yields. Uh, most of us in uh, northwest Ohio, uh, we probably only planted about 50% of the corn that we typically plant. Took a lot of prevent planting around here. And uh, the soybeans that were planted were mostly planted in late June. And we, because we kept pretty good rain throughout uh, July, August, and early September, our soybean yields have actually been pretty reasonable to work with. Oh, so good. Most farmers are pleasantly pleasantly pleased with uh, with the yields they have gotten. 
Sure. You know, I, I think it does, 2019 does really bring up a lot of things for next year in terms of uh, prevent plant acres and certainly our state so it's fair share of those as well. And then just more soybean acres where guys are looking in a lot of these fields that got in late of, uh, well, hey, I'm going to intend to plant corn next year and I want to get some fertility out there. What are some of the things you should be thinking about this fall as, as you look at nitrogen applications? Well, you know, we always like to, to make sure the soil temperatures get down below about 50 degrees before we look, get serious about nitrogen application, simply because uh, the colder it is, the slower the um, bacteria would be that would convert the nitrogen uh, from the anhydrous form over to a more leachable form or a form that would be more, more likely to get away. So predominantly in Ohio, we try not to overemphasize fall nitrogen application, but when we do, most farmers will use instinct or some other type of uh, inserve type product to uh, tie up, to kill the bacteria, to, to keep the nitrogen in the ammonium form, and hopefully uh, have it stay put through much of the winter. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, killing or slowing these bacteria down with some of the stabilizer products. We always get nervous about this when we think about soil health and our impact on the microbial life in the soil. How how big a factor is this? Is this something that, wow, it's wide scale, taking a huge percentage of the bacteria out, or is this just a small amount of area or right around that nitrogen? It's a small area right around where the nitrogen was put into the ground, so eventually those bacteria will build back and overcome uh, those that were killed. So the thought process, again, is to, uh, is to let that soil be cool enough that that doesn't, doesn't apply or doesn't happen. And uh, with our temperatures, we're looking at our uh, first killing frost probably tonight, and I think even uh, supposed to snow at some point uh, tomorrow night. So our soil temperatures are starting to drop uh, rapidly. So if we get dry enough, uh, we're now going to be in November before we're back in the fields. If we get dry enough, farmers will go go forth and put uh, put their anhydrous on yet this fall. Yeah, well, good luck to all the farmers in Ohio. It's been uh, it's been quite the year over there already, and uh, sounds like harvest has mm-hmm. has been no exception to that rule. But yeah, lots of lots of different things going on out there. Uh, I know with the increase in cover crops and and other things that are happening that have been real positive factors in Ohio. That's changed things a little bit too. Uh, any comments around that with with cover crops and and getting out fall fertility applications? Well, I think that. Um on our prevent plant fields, we've had a lot of opportunities to get more wheat planted, get more cover crops. Uh, there was a big increase this year in the use of uh, sorghum sedan grass on these prevent plant fields so that farmers had something. If they're dairy farmers, they had a forage for their cattle. If they're beef farmers, they could make a they could roll that up as a, as a feed product. So we saw a pretty big jump in uh, the use of, of different types of, of uh, crops that could be cover crops in the fall, of course. So that was kind of a positive that we took out of this. And then I think with uh, the issues with Lake Erie, I think there's uh, going to be some uh, what they call H2O funds coming along, some other types of funding through the state of Ohio that are going to really encourage uh, uh, the use of cover crops. We just need to continue to work to find ones that, that, that grow well into the fall. It's really hard sometimes to get cover crops established between uh, the time crops are harvested in uh, mid-October and uh, the time... You know, we get to mid-November when very little grows after that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It it's a been a big issue. There's no question about that with Lake Erie and what's happened there. And it's it's neat when we get positive 
alternatives that we can do in agriculture to try and help things, at least for the part that, that we're responsible for. been talking with Glenn Arnold at Ohio State. Glenn, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Oh, glad to be around. Uh, we've got Charlie with us right now. He farms in South Dakota. Charlie, how's it going today? Oh, it's going pretty well. I'm actually uh, putting some anhydrous down right today as we speak. All right. Now, Glenn was saying in Ohio, they, they really haven't had their first hard-killing frost yet, but uh, South Dakota's been 20 degrees in the mornings, even a little bit cooler than that. So soil temp definitely uh, definitely going down pretty quickly here. Uh, as you're doing the anhydrous, what, what's changed over the last few years? Has it been harder to get in your area? Have you still had good local supplies? Um, actually, anhydrous is not too common in this area. We've got our own on-farm storage. And we've had that for several years now, and so we'll just bring it in by the semi-load. Okay, how does that work uh, with what you're doing with tillage practices and cover crops and so forth? Uh, has this been uh, a better source for, or I guess, why why have you guys decided that it's been a better source for your farm? Well, I've found out that there's no perfect way to apply, no perfect nitrogen source, but we used to broadcast. Um, urea quite often, and we're primarily, on, well, we're all no-till. Very rare instances we will do tillage. Uh, we raise cover crops in addition to wheat, corn, soybeans, sunflowers. Um, so I like, I'm starting to like the liquid fertilizers more for a more even distribution. I've even found out, you know, from having airflow machines that even the dry fertilizers don't spread the best. So I've got kind of an expensive anhydrous system on here where I know that every row is getting exactly what it needs to be, and there's very little variance from row to row. So I like the even application of that. And, um, yeah, so I've liked that system where we're kind of putting it in, indexing it with our tramline system, so it works well for us. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's neat. I, I like seeing what you guys are doing, and I know you've been really focused on soil health and, and utilizing cover crops in the system. And a lot of times when you hear anhydrous, people say, oh, that's not good for soil health. Uh, it's kind of why I brought up with Glenn, you know, what are you seeing with these stabilizers? Is it a big impact or just a very localized impact? Would you say the same thing with the anhydrous, that soil health is still improving on your farm? Oh, definitely. Um, we've We've always We've been actually raising more and more cover crops, and especially this year in 2019 with all the prevent plants, we you know had a lot more cover crops. And I've been soil sampling recently, and yeah, I'm finding out that it's a good way to capture that nitrogen. So whatever you put out, you know, maybe last fall or this spring, you didn't get your crop planted. That cover crop's going to tie it up and keep it keep it near the surface. Um, all my soil testing has indicated that. Whether you have, you know, a poor-looking cover crop or a good-looking cover crop, we've had very low nitrate level in our soil because it, it's capturing that, and that's, so it will recycle. That's fantastic. I know a lot of guys were hoping that would be the case this year with the cover crops. It's really fun when you get the data to back up what the theory is, too. Hey, Charlie, thank you so much. Really appreciate what you're doing. Stay safe this harvest season. We'll be right back after this. What if surviving a drought began with a microbe? What if instead of 10 buyers, you could access 10,000? What if you were paid for the carbon your crops pulled from the air? And what if these what ifs weren't what ifs at all? At Indigo, we're working with farmers to question the entire agriculture system 
to reimagine everything from soil to sail. Yep, the whole lot. Visit indigoag.com slash questions to find out more. Indigo, from questions we grow. Clean fields and higher yields start with a strong battle plan. For soybean growers, there's no stronger ally than Sonic Herbicide. When applied pre-emerge, Sonic has proven to defeat yield robbers like Waterhemp, Mare's Tail, and Giant Ragweed. With long-lasting residual control, it keeps fighting to defend your field from invaders. Visit BattleWeeds.com to plan your attack against weeds. Always read and follow label directions. Sir, yes, sir! How do you know when to run your grain bin fans? There's an app for that. With the Steps GMS app, you can manually turn your fans on and off from your smartphone. You can also configure the Steps GMS app to automatically turn fans on when the humidity or temperature is ideal to keep your grain in top quality condition. Save yourself some time and take the guesswork out of managing your stored grain with the Steps GMS app. Contact us at stepsgms.com for more information. No one has to explain stress to a farmer. That's like explaining a missed forecast to a weatherman. Now, Mother Nature stresses soybeans the way markets, bankers, and politics can stress you. But there's a proven way to reduce stress. With Preaxor fungicide, you'll see the difference. It decreases stress from disease, drought, hail, and heat, so your beans can focus on what matters most, better yields. Talk to your local rep about Preaxor fungicide and BASF plant health. Always read and follow label directions. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. As your corn crop grows and the ear begins to form, potassium is at a high demand, almost as high as nitrogen. The same is true for soybeans with similar high demands of potassium during pod fill. Don't fall behind and ensure your crop is getting its potassium with Catalyst. Catalyst by Actigrow has been shown to be the best at entering the leaf when compared to other leading potassium products. Visit k-supercharged.com for more information. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, talking about anhydrous ammonia and taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844 844- 44 Ag PhD. You can also find us on Twitter, Ag PhD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Let's head up to North Dakota. We get Josh with us right now. Josh, how's it going? Oh, good. Combining soybeans. All right. That's good. Now, are these soybeans that were under some snow in the past that, that are now ready to go? Yes, they are. So They're a little flat in areas, but they... Uh, they're fairly good so far. I was wondering about that. I, I've talked to a few guys that have said some of the beans with big, wide lateral branches, they feel like they lost some of those laterals, uh, and there were some spots they were combined in one way, but they thought they were getting most of it. Would you say that's pretty fair? Yeah, I had a field that was um, longer maturity, and it still had leaves on it yet when the snow came, and that stuff really got taken down, and we just had to go slow and, use the reel to pull it in 
and uh, got it as best we can. I mean, there's there's still beans on the ground, but there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, yeah. That's and tough. we, of course, had hail before that, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, 2019's been something. I'm ready for this one to be done. I'm looking forward to 2020. Okay, so talk to us we about are, 2020, then. You, you had an anhydrous comment here, too. I'm sorry, you can go on, too, Josh, if you want to talk more about this fall as oh. well. I was going to say, we also had to wait for it to freeze because there was so much water you couldn't get across the fields. Yeah, this has been this has been something. Um, okay, let's talk about anhydrous a little bit. And you, you had a question about side dressing. Yeah, I use anhydrous side dress um, mostly because it was relatively easy for me to set up a side dresser to to do anhydrous, and it's relatively cost effective in our area versus twenty eight percent because we don't raise a lot of corn here. Sure. Not a lot of guys use 28%. I was just wondering your thoughts on if that was a good idea or if going with 28% would be better. Well, you know, we don't have any problem with using anhydrous as a side dress. There are a lot of people that do that, but the numbers keep going down every year because of what I was talking about earlier in the show, which is the price of anhydrous seems to keep getting higher compared to 28%. The availability of it seems to keep going down. I know dealers around us have been dropping it completely just because they didn't want to deal with the insurance and the, the safety training and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the big factors for you in using that anhydrous, number one, I'm going to worry slightly about your safety. And number, I mean, you just got to be careful with it. It's fine, but just got to be super careful. Yep. And number two, and when, you got to make sure that ground this, is sealed. He's he's a guy that's actually been putting on anhydrous on the farm. That's one of the things well, that... Well, I haven't a lot. But yeah, I mean, we only have a couple of guys that I would let put anhydrous on. You know, it, it's not everybody... Uh, that I would even allow to do it because you got to be, you, you got to have some common sense. So let's put it this way. I wouldn't put my 18 year old son out uh, applying anhydrous. So, you know, that's all I'm getting at on the safety. And then it, it's just, you got to make sure it's covered. So that's one of the issues I've seen in the past is if the ground is, let's say a little wet and a guy wants to get out there and get it done and you say, well, I got to get going. Then sometimes we see the corn burned because the anhydrous didn't get sealed good enough and that could cause a problem. So it's just with the 28%, it's a little easier to work with. Um, you can usually go quite fast too, because anymore, we'll, a lot of times we might just drag hoses if a rain's coming or something. And man, we can use our, our sprayer that's got a 120 foot boom and we can cover a tremendous amount of acres in a short time. So, I, I mean, there, there, there are many advantages to the 28, but ultimately if you don't have availability and the anhydrous is cheaper, I totally understand why you would want to stay with anhydrous. Okay. 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 What about uh, doing the twenty-eight percent if there's not a rain coming? Uh, I yep. mean, at that it, point, injecting it would be better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you've got two choices: one, inject it, or two, put a nitrogen stabilizer with it and start praying for rain, <laughs> and hope it comes <laughs> relatively soon, because you got a little bit of time. But I, you know, like there are a lot of guys too that'll blow urea on. Well, with urea, without a stabilizer, you've got forty-eight hours. If you don't have a rain within 48 hours or cover it within 48 hours, you're going to start to lose it. And even uh, North Dakota State University will data will show you that. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, there's there's some risk to it whenever you're going to put any form of nitrogen on the soil surface. If you're getting rain, great. If not, then, yeah, you, you want to get it injected or get it covered somehow. Okay. All right. That was the main questions I had. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for calling, Josh. 
Let's get back to the phone lines. Uh, we've got Brooks with us right now. He's down in Missouri, and he's actually uh, an applicator for, for anhydrous ammonia with a custom application business. Uh, Brooks, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, or afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, uh, we were just talking to Josh up in North Dakota, and he's been using anhydrous in a side dress. I know a lot of times we talk about just anhydrous as the base program. Is side dressing something you do as well? Uh, it's not something that we do on our farm. Uh, there's there's some guys around that, you know, you were talking about spreading your and 28%, and they, they'll applicate it, uh, apply it that way, but, you know, we don't side dress much here. So with anhydrous in your area, what what is supply like? Are there still lots of people around doing it, or is it getting a little tougher for farmers to find? Uh, it's getting tougher. Uh, it depends on the time of the year and the year. You know, a lot of times if guys are really blowing and going, then we really we, we have to stop because we can't get it. You know, we're a small co-op, and, they, you know, they worry about us, but they don't they can't keep everyone um, in anhydrous. So there are years where we, we have to... <laughs> sit and wait for it to come back you know uh brian talked about just the safety a little bit i know you've been doing it for a while so uh, you you kind of know what you're doing with it but what do you see with that in terms of the insurance and the safety training and all things that go with it are they trying to regulate it out of business you know it, it seems like that and with the current state of life it seems like they try to regulate everything out of existence but it is no bigger than we are it, it sometimes it's it seems like it may not be worth it, but it's it's a cheap, relatively cheap, easy way to, to apply fertilizer. And so I guess we'll keep doing it until they tell us that we can't. So, Sure, sure. How, how is harvest coming down in your area? Slow. Uh, we had a heck of a time finding dry corn, and then, um, and then we had a heck of a time finding dry beans, and then it snowed on us. Not, I have some friends in Iowa and, of course, North Dakota and South Dakota that they don't want to hear about my little dust. It's still, still inconvenient. <laughs> no, I get it. It's a, it's a pain in the butt. We've all had to go through it up here, so not a surprise. Oh, okay, so as harvest has been slow, has any fertility work gotten done at all? Do you guys put P and K out there right as soon as, as uh, combines run through? Uh, yes, I have seen some, some rigs running through, putting dry on. Uh, I've seen, I thought I saw an applicator putting some anhydrous on there the other day. I could have just been dreaming and wishful thinking, but I thought I saw one yet. Yep. Where you're at in, in Missouri, do you normally see anhydrous go on? I mean, it doesn't go on before November 1st, does it much? No, the ground temperature generally isn't cold enough to to hold it at that time. There's some guys that use the, the, the stabilizers, but not a whole lot of it. So usually it's it'll be next week there'll be a lot of guys going pretty heavy. Yep, yep. And uh, and what have you seen? I know it was a battle this year. Have you had any decent yields? I'm assuming it's kind of all over the board like it's been for us. It, it has been, but, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. There were spots where I couldn't get the planter across at this spring because it was so darn wet. But where I did get the planter across, the yields have been, they've been pleasantly surprising, and the beans are the same way, you know, where I couldn't drag a planter through it. There's obviously nothing, but where I was able to get seed in the ground, we had a favorable growing year. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, good. I mean, it's good to get rewarded when when you go through all the battles just to to get stuff in the field. I know we were really wondering that ourselves this spring as we we're pushing through and uh, just wondering if we were doing the right thing sometimes. And and when it turns out turns out good, that's uh, that makes it all worth it. Well, Brooks, uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate talking to you. Hopefully, you guys don't get any more snow here till after you get everything done down there. But uh, but good luck and stay safe this harvest. Thank you, you guys as well. Good talking to you again. You bet. Yeah, the snow thing has been interesting, and uh, I've just been been looking on social media here um, in the last couple of days, seeing where the snow is hitting around the country, and uh, we don't have any right now. Hopefully, it stays that way for a while. I know we get a chance uh, tonight into tomorrow. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, we're talking in hydras today. Certainly talking about soil temperatures as well, and willing to take any agronomic questions you may have. If you give us a call at eight four four. 44 Ag PhD. We've got a bunch of questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. We'll get to those coming up right after this. Stay tuned. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic pesticides from Atticus LLC. Atticus offers a vast portfolio of branded generic fungicides, herbicides, and insecticides for row crops. Atticus puts grassroots experience and common sense logic to work to make product selection easier and on your terms. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. If your fertilizers aren't formulated to maximize your efficiency, if you can't mix all the PK and micros your crop needs into one prescription application, if you have to add products to improve and invigorate your soil biology, then you need to expect more from your fertilizer. With AgroLiquid's advanced technology, you can expect more, a lot more. Make the most of your crop nutrition. With AgroLiquid, to find a crop nutrition expert near you, visit agroliquid.com. If you like most farmers, you start thinking about next year's herbicide program right now. And the first step to a clean start next spring is applying Authority MTZ DF herbicide this fall. Nothing burns down tough winter annuals, including common chickweed, henbit, and mare's tail, like a tank mix containing Authority MTZ DF herbicide. Talk to your FMC Star retailer about Authority MTZ DF herbicide or visit fmcauthority.com. Always read and follow label directions. Authority is not registered for sale or use in California. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. For generations, your family has given their all to create a farming legacy. The fields now in your care are a heavy responsibility to sustain. You can't control when or how rain falls, but you can ensure your fields remain productive by taking water drainage into your own hands with the SoilMax Gold Digger Tile Plow. SoilMax Tile Plows bring a quick return in dollars, but no ROI is greater than a family's farming future. Let SoilMax ensure your greatest investment continues. Visit SoilMax.com to learn more. Avoid the V-shaped pattern of injury caused by chemical buildup in your booms. The Express end cap from Hypro eliminates the dead ends that lead to herbicide buildup and provides easy access to your booms, giving a complete flush between applications. Hypro, helping you spray better. 
The last thing you want after harvesting your grain is to spoil it before it goes to market. The Grain Temp Guard from FarmShop MFG is a low-cost bin monitoring solution that tracks temperature and humidity and alerts you when conditions exceed safe thresholds. Visit FarmShopMFG.com. Hey everybody, come on in. The Ag PhD Mailbag is about to begin. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. It's time now for the Ag PhD Mailbag. That means we're taking your calls, questions, and emails throughout the rest of the show. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. You can even send us a question on Twitter if you'd like. You can find us at Ag PhD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty. Okay, Brian, got one from Mike, and he said, uh, was was watching a piece that you did on magnesium and high magnesium soils. You recommended adding lime in a high pH soil. Seems silly to me. Why don't you just get some gypsum? Yep. Um, The more that I study this, the more that I think the gypsum is an awfully good way to go. We have actually had some success with lime when the calcium level is ridiculously low, and we've actually seen the lime lower the pH. And we're talking like really high pHs, like let's call it eight and a half pH, yet the calcium is super low. So what we're dealing with there most of the time is a very high magnesium soil. And all we're trying to do is change that ratio of calcium to magnesium. So when we're that far gone, I'll call it, where we're 40% calcium, yet we're eight and a half pH, we're 40, 50% magnesium, you know, throwing lime out there is certainly not a bad thing, but gypsum is good too. And we've done combinations of lime and gypsum. A lot of times what it really comes back to is cost. And we've got some people that are getting free lime. Uh, there, There's lime out of, for example, sugar beet plants. And it might be free or cost very, very little versus spending an inordinate amount of money to bring gypsum in. And so we look at, okay, would it be cheaper to put some lime out there and then add some elemental sulfur versus trying to bring in a whole slug of gypsum. And so we've always got to go back to the economics. And that's really the ultimate answer to this question is there are different ways to do things based on what your costs are. And I can I, I can get your ground in good shape um, using a number of different tactics. But yeah, lime plus sulfur, I'm going to look at what's the cost there versus gypsum and what's the cost there. And in some cases, believe it or not, the lime plus elemental sulfur is actually cheaper. And that's really what we're talking about. Hey, thanks for the question, Mike. Thanks for uh, checking out the show as well. And if you got some high pH soils, if you've got soil tests of your own, we'd love to take a look at those and see if we could uh, offer another opinion as well. Uh, let's get to another question here. We got Kyle, uh, who uh, he did a did a little challenge. We we put out a challenge to look at, at corn planters and looked at row to row variability. It's something that that Randy Dowdy's been talking about a lot, and uh, we've seen a number of farmers around the country that have been doing this just to see what the yield difference is row to row on the planter. Uh, Kyle says we completed our challenge not only for row to row variability, but also to measure some testing that we're doing with our planter. We've got a 24 row planter. We had rows one through eight set up with a two by two with the standard deer closing wheels. Then we had rows nine through 16 set up with two by two on each side of the row using conceal and furrow cruiser closed spike 
closing spiked wheels. That's easy for you to say. And then rows right. 17 through 24, <laughs> two by two, and furrow cruiser spiked closing wheels. And looking at the the difference uh, across the planter, I, I think if I remember right, there was as much as a 60 bushel difference from the best row to the worst row. That that's a big deal. And when we look, uh, he grouped them up also. Each eight rows, the first eight rows, second eight rows, third eight rows, uh, there was only, I think, a 12-bushel difference when you added them all together and averaged things out. I think it was interesting this year looking at some of these row-to-row variability checks just with how muddy some of the fields were and the conditions that guys got in there. It it really opened my eyes anyway to the variability that exists. The most I see in the sheet you handed me, Darren, is a 48-bushel difference from row to row. The other thing is a lot of people will talk about the pinch rows. Only 48-bushel. I'm just saying it wasn't 60. But anyway, a lot of people will talk about the pinch rows and rows right in the middle of the planter and the weight and all all that issue. But I look at the four rows in the middle of the planter. On average, they actually yielded higher than almost any other rows on the rest of the planter. So, in fact, the worst row was on the far outside end. So the the whole point is you can't just assume that, oh, I definitely have this problem because somebody else has this problem. You may or may not. We don't know what your planter is like, but all we do know is how you set your planter, how you adjust your planter, how you get your planter ready to go in the spring, those are all things that are absolutely 100% within your control. You and I can't control Mother Nature, unfortunately. Many days I would like to, but you know, there's, there's nothing we can do about that. And so quite often as farmers, we say, well, we didn't have enough rain, or we had too much rain, or this problem or that problem. But let's face it, he had the same amount of rain throughout the whole field. Well, his best row that I see here was 257 bushels per acre. His worst row was 209 bushels per acre. Those two rows had the same moisture. Those two rows probably had the same fertility, the same many other things. But I'm going to assume there was some kind of setting wrong, whether it was depth, spacing, uh, just poor equipment um, operation there. I mean, something was wrong in that row that yielded almost 50 bushels less. So had that gotten fixed... I, yeah, I mean, one row out of 24 isn't going to make or break you, but it'd help, you know, on average, if that increases your yield across the farm, one bushel. Like for us, we, we have two, we had 2,000 acres of corn this year. If I get one more bushel, that's 2,000 more bushels on the farm, okay? And you multiply that times $4, I mean, it's 8,000 more dollars. That, that's absolutely pure profit. So, and that's just fixing, or, I mean, just working on one row, I mean, that's awesome. So if he can do things like that and and check out things like that, and in his case, I mean, if he would have gotten it all the way up to, you know, we totally recovered the 48 bushels, you know, uh, that's two bushels per acre. So like on our farm, that'd be $16,000 for all, all for just doing a little bit of work on the planter. That's, that's probably pretty good pay. I, I've been saying for the, uh, for the last couple months here, I told our farm manager, Mike, uh, he is not going to run a planter next spring. He's literally going to be out in the field checking planter operation the whole time, making adjustments to the planter, everything else next spring. And I don't think he's believed me yet. But the, the point is, you can have a great person and pay him a lot just to make some adjustments that, uh, during your two or three weeks of planting. Because, man, I, I mean, if I can fix every row and get them to work great, it's a lot of dollars. All right, that's all I got. 
All right. Well, we had another one uh, from Pennsylvania come in. Same kind of thing. They've got a six-year-old planter. They saw row-to-row variability, boy, in, in several different checks here, anywhere from 10 bushel to 38 bushel. And, yeah, a lot of the same comments that, that Brian just had on uh, on the last one, how important it is to get that planter set just right and how that's going to, going to help you on the farm, no doubt about that. All right, Brian, got a... Uh, kind of a political thing going on, and we got an email. Uh, the EPA and the Clean Water Act uh, feel that overturned dirt in a farmer's field is technically pollution, and they're actually farmers in California now being sued by the EPA because they've done tillage. Uh, what What do you think about that, and are you hearing the same things? No. I, I mean... That's it's ridiculous. So tell the government, come buy my ground for full price and you can farm. You try farming the ground and then we'll see people starve. I mean, get real. So you have to, you, you, and even if you say, well, we'll just no-till then. Well, technically, if you're going to plant, that's tillage. So you can't farm without doing some type of soil disturbance. So to think that uh, doing tillage in a field is pollution, I mean, get real. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. We were talking about it earlier, just about uh, some of the different regulations that are out there and uh, how that's uh, impacting things. It's it's tough. Okay, uh, I got one from Jeremy here, Southeast Illinois. He said we got a couple of soil testing labs in the area. One lab I've heard is not state certified. What does it mean for a lab to be state certified? How will that impact my soil test results uh, if I send them to each lab? Um. I don't really know. I, I would just say this. If a lab isn't state certified, the odds are probably pretty high. They haven't been around for a while, or maybe their methods aren't necessarily standard. So is that something you really want to go with? I don't know. I, I, I've never dealt with that before. But I, I would just say we like working with a bigger lab that we can trust that the results are going to be pretty consistent. We've worked with them for quite a while. Stay tuned. We'll get back to more of your calls and questions right after this. Every farmer knows there are lots of steps to having a perfect season. Don't let your fertilizer plan be the step that trips you up. For over 35 years, AgriLiquid has had the experts and the products that'll help you move closer to your target. No matter when you apply fertilizer, no matter how, you'll hit the bullseye. AgroLiquid can help you increase yields and crop quality. To learn more, go to agroliquid.com. AgroLiquid moves you closer to your target. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough to control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. 
Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agri specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at GrainPhD.com. Your independent spirit is more rewarding than ever before. Unlike programs that require growers to purchase a particular seed brand or to bundle certain products, the FMC Freedom Pass program rewards you for making the best choices for your fields. Our exclusive agronomic rewards, performance assurances, application innovations, and product financing make it easier to protect your crops and cash flow. Visit your authorized FMC retailer or fmcfreedompass.com to calculate your potential financial incentive and learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and agronomic questions throughout the rest of the show. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. All right, Brian, get a weed control question for you. This is from Keith in Southern Ohio. He said, I'm starting to think about my weed control plan for next year. You got to grab a pen because I'm going to give you a list here. So this year I had a little bit of difficulty with weed control in my soybean fields. They're going to corn next year. Uh, just we had a ton of rain. Uh, biggest problems with the annual grasses were fall panicum and giant foxtail, as well as just a little bit of pigweed. I sense some sarcasm there. He said the corn's going to be no-till, and the fields have a cover crop of wheat and rapeseed right now. I'm thinking of doing a burn down about two weeks prior to planting to terminate the covers and any winter annuals. Here's my question. I'm planning on going 40 ounces of glyphosate, with eight ounces of dicamba, then coming back after planting with 40 ounces of glyphosate, a quart of sure start, three quarters of a pound of atrazine, and three ounces of meso or callisto. He said, I'm wondering what you think. Do you, do you believe this would get me decent weed control until canopy? Uh, what changes would you suggest, and what do you think about the extra weed pressure coming out of uh, all the pigweed that we had this year? Okay, so when we start talking about corn weed control, I don't really care all that much if you're no-till or conventional till. We're going to use many of the same herbicides. About the only additional thing that you need is some burn down, like you said there. So the burn down is basically taking the place of tillage. I am uh, not very concerned about fall panicum or foxtail. The pigweed is not a real big deal in, in corn if you hit it with two shots. My concern here is you're not really hitting it with two shots. So you're burned down two weeks pre-plant. There will be a little pigweed up then, but you don't have lots of residual there. You're only talking about eight ounces of dicamba, so you got a few days worth of residual at best. Um, also, if the 
pigweed is up. And let's just say there's mare's tail out there too, because I'm assuming, what state did you say he was from? Ohio? Yes. Yeah, that's Ohio. what I thought. Yeah. So if he's a no-tailer from Ohio, I'd be surprised if you don't have mare's tail out there. So if you've got mare's tail out there and you have any pigweed out there, is eight ounces of dicamba going to do it because 40 ounces of glyphosate isn't going to work? Um, no, that's not enough. So if it's me, I'm probably running a full pint of dicamba. So that's the first change I'd make. The second change I'd make is I'd probably put the sure start in right then. I would, I would rather see the sure start done early. So you start getting some residual out. And then what I would do is I'd, I'd come with your program later. You're running glyphosate. Your atrazine's a little high. I wouldn't go three quarters. I'd go half, uh, half a pound. Three ounces of meso's fine. But what I would do is I'd try to delay that just a little bit. And I might throw just a little bit of, let's say, metolachlor or something in with it to another group 15 to try to buy me some more residual. So that's how I would do it. I'd bump your rated Icamba to 16 ounces. I'd put the sure start in with the, the, the burn down. And then I would, and two weeks pre-plant so a ways. My, my number one question is, why aren't you planting earlier? If it's me, about as soon as I can burn down, I'm going to be planting. So I'd probably plant, you know, just a few days after that if it was me. So I, I'd do my burn down. I'd plant a few days earlier, and then I would wait a little bit longer than what you're talking about to, to spray the glyphosate, atrazine, meso, and I would throw a little bit of uh, metallical or some group 15 in there with that. And then I think you'll probably be in pretty decent shape. So if there's lots of pigweed, you could always add a little dicamba or something to the post as well. Just be a little careful with that. All right, Keith, thanks for the question. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it can be some weed control challenges, no, no doubt, coming out of this year. Yeah, uh, but weed control is fun. I mean, we got lots of lots of great products, plenty of opportunities to control weeds. But the thing we talk about all the time is let's get two definitely certain shots on it. And that's my point. His 40 ounces of glyphosate sounds nice. That's for sure going to wipe out all the grass. But the problem is it's not going to kill the pigweed or the mare's tail. And quite frankly, the 40 ounces on in the burn down isn't super necessary other than he's trying to kill that cover crop off. And I get that. But you know, you could just bump the dicamba rate like I'm talking about and cut the glyphosate rate and you'll do better. All right, uh, let's take another weed control question. Since you said there are so many options, Brian, let's turn to alfalfa. We got one here from TA who says, I'm wondering, you talk about a lot of different sprays uh, going out on Roundup Ready alfalfa. Uh, other than Roundup, are there any of them that that uh, I can that I can't use on non-Roundup Ready alfalfa? I just planted a non-Roundup alfalfa crop in September, and weed control will start soon. Yeah, so anything that we're going to recommend to you on Roundup Ready alfalfa, you can absolutely use in conventional alfalfa other than obviously Roundup. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of choices. There are not many products labeled and, and even fewer that we recommend. So usually it's it's this simple. So I'm going to give you the answer in less than one minute of all the choices I would ever recommend to you for alfalfa weed control. I'm going to start with Eptam Pre-Plant Incorporated, and I'm going to use that at probably half a gallon per acre. That's it, Pre. Post-Emerge, I'm going to recommend either Pursuit or Raptor, I guess, probably Raptor instead of Pursuit, same basic thing, uh, or Buctrel or a little bit of Buterac, one or two ounces of Buterac, or some combination of those three. And that's basically it for broadleaf control. And then for grass control post-emerge, I would say like Clethodim, for example. 
we're done. I mean, that's it. Those are the only choices you really have. And I realize there are a few other products that are labeled on alfalfa, but most of them, personally, I just feel are too hard on the alfalfa, and I don't like to see them used. All right. Quick thanks, conversation. Thanks for the question, TEA. Appreciate that. Uh, get one from John in Maryland. He said, I'm wondering how to calculate how much rain gets to the base of each plant. Plants work like funnels, which is why the wide drops work so well in corn. Obviously, things like plant type, growth stages, row spacing certainly affect the totals. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's step back one second. With the wide drops, why did he say they work so well in corn? Because plants funnel moisture down to the base of the plant. Okay, I disagree. Oh, well, then you'd be wrong. Uh, They certainly do funnel some down to the bottom. They might, but that's not what... The the Y drops do not put the product on the stem of the plant and have it funneled down. No, they don't. They put it down at the base of the plant, and the hope is with that system that that enough water funnels down the plant that it's going to move fertility that's laying on the top of the soil like nitrogen and sulfur and move it down into the soil. Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, But I would say this. One of the reasons why the Y drop thing works pretty well is because... Near the plant, roots are a lot more shallow. When you get out in between, let's say you're even six inches over, the roots are a lot deeper. So the reason why it works better is you need less rainfall. It's not because the plant funnels a whole bunch of water down. There's no way the plant funnels enough water down to 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 get to push the stuff in the ground. So anyway, what was his question? Sorry. All right, so he's wondering if there's a formula to figure out how much water is there. I don't know if it matters, John. I guess I'm not sure why. It does matter, and that's my point. I don't believe there's enough, but I don't have the formula. I don't know, and a lot of this is going to depend on how much dew there is every day. Right, so I think with dew, that makes a big difference. With a one-inch rain, I don't know that you're necessarily going to get a huge percentage that's going to be within three inches of that plant on either side versus out in the middle of the row. I don't know that answer. No. I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference, but it's going to depend on, to your point, and I think where you were going is the bigger the plant, obviously, the more it's going to funnel if you get a rain. Yes, I agree with that. But uh, the other thing I would say is we have much windier conditions than almost anywhere where they raise corn and soybeans in the country. The windier you are, the less humidity is going to stay, or let me me rephrase that, The, the less moisture is going to dribble down to the surface of the soil and give you moisture that could possibly move anything in. All right, so he's got a couple other things here. He said, we've got thin soils, heavy rainfall, we got a lot of rock, uh, so banding and liquid on the surface looks plausible for us. I'm curious, is there a formula to figure out uh, the amount of rain at the base of each plant and also how fast different fertilizers move through varying soil types. You know, with that one, <laughs> all you could do is do some soil testing, John, and just see, all right, I put product out, uh, let's pull a test every couple of weeks down, you know, at so many inches deep to see how fast you're getting there. I think that that would be my There have suggestion. been some studies done on that, but we know this. Nitrate is the by far the biggest risk. Sulfate roughly leaches at half the rate of nitrate, and then boron is less than that even. But those are the three most leachable nutrients. And with soil water monitoring setups, uh, you can you can look and see when, when salt levels increase at different areas too. That's I know that's something we've heard some of the high-yield growers talk about at the Ag PhD field day site. Uh, I don't know that there's an exact science on any of that, so it might be something you have to play around with a little bit, John. Hey, thanks for the questions. Really appreciate that. Thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD radio. 
Now stay tuned for Rob Sharkey and a Halloween Shark Farmer Radio Show. <laughs> 